0: What makes for a good title, thumbnail, first sentence? Born to tell dad jokes, I like a good <laughs> pun. The goal is like, I want this to be the best piece that's ever been written about this company. I want people to be able to understand what they do in a way that they didn't before. The comment that I get from people after I write a deep dive on a company most often is like, finally my mom understands
1: what I do. <laughs> when you wrote The Great Online Game, did you expect that to break the internet? Today's guest is Packy McCormick, who writes a newsletter that's called Not Boring. And somehow, some way, he was a student in my very first rite of passage cohort. I have watched this guy grow from publishing his very first piece to now how he's developed a sense of style using his wit, his humor's love for dad jokes, bringing that all together to write about tech in a fun and vibrant way. If that's something that you want to do. You want to think through, hey, I get really into topics and I want to write about those pieces. Hey, I want to develop a voice in my own work. I want to be thinking about how do I actually build a business around writing? How should I be thinking about subscriptions and advertising? Packy's your guy. So if those are things that you're interested in, you're thinking about in your own writing, you're really going to like this episode. All right, Packy, this is going to be a trip down memory lane. We go way back way back to the days when you literally hadn't written anything, and I was teaching read a Passage in my bedroom. But one of the things that you've become a master at is packaging ideas, packaging pieces. So I wanna start off by talking about how you think through the synthesis of a title, a thumbnail, and the first sentence.
0: So I think this is gonna be a good kind of preview for the whole conversation. Where there's a lot of things that I think maybe look like there's a bunch of thought, and I will like literally last minute before I hit publish be like, well, like every every time I start writing a piece, I have a title up top, and sometimes it stays because like sometimes the title is almost like why I want to write the piece. I'm like, oh, that's a really interesting like idea in a title, and so I put that up top, and then in brackets beneath it I put title image, and then I write the piece, and then I write the piece, and we can go into the process, and it's gotten like uglier actually over Mm -hmm. time the the writing process. The last thing that I do is I'm like, did I make a good image? Do I need to go to Dolly? Do I need to do something? Hopefully I've like drawn something that that works as a title image. Um, and then we'll throw that in as like the last thing once I've finally written the piece. But that's yeah, it's a messy, messy process.
1: What makes for a good title thumbnail first sentence? I think what makes for
0: a good title is I mean, I'm like, I was born to be a dad. I'm like born to tell dad jokes. I like a good (laughs) pun. I think if it's like, if it can convey the idea, but be kind of fun and catch somebody's attention, like that's a good title. The good thumbnail image I've, I think for, for pieces and maybe it's because Twitter throttles links and I don't put them in there as much. I actually think that the more attention- grabbing thing on Twitter is like a really good bar chart or like a really good chart of some sort or a really good number mm. is what you'd want to actually put in the original tweet. I think the thumbnail is probably less and less important, which is probably why I put less and less time into it, because before, if I could put the link in and then like the title image would show up in full in, in the, the first tweet, that really matters. I think it matters less and less, and, and I think like finding the, the shocking stat or you know shocking like visual thing is, is a good thing to put in the thumbnail image. I actually I don't think I'm particularly good at the first sentence, but what I like to do is like I will spend most of my time writing an essay on the on the introduction, on like the first few paragraphs. The way that I think about and describe it is like if you're you know skiing a fresh run, like figuring out your line ahead of time is like really important. Once you figure out your line, you just kind of go and you're like going through the piece. If I can figure out how to frame the thing. Like all the other sections kind of fall into place from like, oh, I'll need to describe this if I'm talking about this. And like, here's you know, a definition of the thing that I'm talking about. So I need to describe that word, that word, that word, or I'm saying this company does X, Y, and Z. I better understand, I better say why the way that other people have done it doesn't actually make any sense anymore, even though you might think that the way that people do it will be the way that people always do it. And I think I establish as much of that as I can in the introduction, and the rest of it kind of just flows from there,
1: so that's an interesting analogy. So I'm going to follow it. We'll see if it's what the implications of it are right or wrong. So what you're saying is that a good introduction, I was sort of implying that it's a hook. What you're saying here is you're basically plotting your direction, plotting your arc. And it's both for you as the writer so that you can get momentum. But is it also for the reader that they can begin to see where they're going? Totally.
0: And I think I could actually do a better job at both hooks and letting readers see where they're going. I think, like, you know, there's a lot of things that we talked about in Rite of Passage or that people talk about generally like write short pieces, let people know exactly what's going on up front. And I could probably get a lot better at that. I think it's more like, I want to figure out like the right interesting path through this piece. And like I hope I have people up front with that, but I like really try not to be hyperbolic. And I like I had like there's maybe like some sort of embarrassment if I'm like trying to get too hooky in the beginning. Um, and so I really just want it to be like. What's the most interesting way to tell this particular story that nobody's told it before? Like, I think that there is a lot of, started thinking about it as like beta content and then like alpha content. And there's like a lot of beta and just like, oh, we're, you know, like AI is going to change the world. Like, who cares? You know, like everybody's writing that thing. Uh, If you read another piece on that, you're not going to get any smarter on it. But like, maybe in 10,000 words and hopefully in the introduction, I can like change the way that you think about an idea. Just enough that, like, you're not going to remember exactly what I wrote in the piece, but like, maybe it'll just like shake something loose in your brain so that you think about the world in like a little bit of a different way, or you're like maybe a little bit more optimistic about something. You think it's a little bit more likely that like a thing like this might happen. And so I'm more going for that than like, oh man, like, that, this is the hook that somebody's going to keep reading for.
1: Yeah. I got this from Sam Parr when he came on the show. He said that what works really well on the internet is like these barbell pieces. So there's some short pieces that say a few hundred words. And I think of those as something that would be like a screenshot essay or like a little bit longer, right? Like a Seth Godin piece, right? There's a shortness, a compression to it. And then he said more than 2000 words. And I like that way of thinking about it because also that's sort of how my brain works where I like producing these short little bits, almost like a comedian, you know, it's sort of would be like, as long as a TikTok video or something like that, sort of in that screenshot, it's like, here's an idea that I can share. Sort of like the pieces that Chris Dixon was writing for for years, three or four paragraphs, one main idea, and it's just right to the point. And then on the flip side is the definitive take on something. Yeah. And you do a good job of this, Mario Gabrielle does a really good job of this. These long form pieces where you basically throw in the mic down, you're saying, I've really thought through this. Here you go. And there's something about the middle where it doesn't quite work as well.
0: I think that's, I mean, every time I write a piece on a company, the first time I, I thought about it this way, like I was writing about companies in the beginning that were either public. And so I just wanted a different way of looking at them because I knew I wasn't going to be as good at analyzing a public company as the analysts who spent all their time thinking about it. But I was like, what if you think about the company like in this type of metaphor? So that was one, but when I started writing about private companies and Stripe was the first one where it was like, everybody's talking about Stripe. Like what is the thing that I can write about Stripe to make this the best piece that has been written on Stripe to date? I think Mario's since written a great one and, and burn has since written a great one. So it might not be the best on the internet anymore about Stripe, but at the time it was definitely the best on the internet about Stripe. They would give it out to new employees when they brought them on board and all of that. And so like that is the goal whenever I write about a company. Still, whenever I write about a company, the goal is like, I want this to be the best piece that's ever been written about this company. I want people to be able to understand what they do in a way that you know they, they didn't before. The comment that I get from people after I write a deep dive in a company most often is like, I'll get employees of the company emailing me or the founder even say like, finally, my mom understands what I do, <laughs> which is cool because I think it says a few different things. Like, one, I'm writing about the types of companies that, like, actually aren't that easy for the, the mom to understand what mm-hmm. these people do. And those just are, a, you know, they've attracted me even more and more over time. But then, two, like, my job, I think, is to be, like, the kind of dumb guy. And, like, you know, I, I don't mean this to be, like, self-efficient, but, like, the person who, like, really needs to, like, actually figure this out alongside the audience or like just before the audience did Mm -hmm. and explain it in a way that like a regular person can. I think if you're like too smart or too deep in an industry, it's like hard to do that. But I'm like just dumb enough that I can go into a new topic, a new company, a new space and like really just try to do all the research and work and then like put as much of the like, here's what I'm learning as I learn it. And like, let me try to describe it in a way that like helped it click for me. Mm -hmm. Um, than I possibly can. So that's that's a little bit of the goal with those.
1: One of the things that I've taken from comedians is, and this comes back to introductions, is how good they are at setting the scene quickly. So someone might say, I was on a bus and all of a sudden there was a fire. Okay, that's <laughs> that is not a good example, but you get the point, yep. right? And what, it's like nine words, and all of a sudden we have conflict. We see the scene. We understand what's going on. And if it was a comedian, they would say it way funnier than I just did. And in the Mario Gabrielle piece on Stripe, his first sentence, I think, is, what if Romulus and Remus had gotten along? That's (laughs) so good. Because now you see it's a story about two brothers, story about power and ambition and boldness, and you see that okay there should be a human component in this piece just one sentence and you've set up that whole scene he's a master at at that i mean i think talk about like you know i
0: start out every one of my newsletters with welcome to the x number of new smart curious people and i think that i have a smart curious audience of people but talk about respecting your audience in the way that mario does where he's like oh yeah people are going to understand exactly what i mean when i say imagine if romulus and remus had gotten along that's incredible
1: yeah Well, this is why I think that the big advantage that we have as online writers is the hyperlink. Because what the hyperlink does is it allows us to embed context in a little blue text with a little underline. And we can say Romulus and Remus, okay, go read that on your own. Yeah, Go read that on your own. And so much of what you're doing when you're writing is you're putting out into the world content, ideas that then are going to attract a certain kind of person. And when you treat your readers like they're smart in that way where you say, what if Romulus and Remus got, got along and you don't take the time to explain it, you just say, you're going to know what this is. Like, Burn Hobart does a great job of this. Yes. You're like, I feel smarter when I read Burn Hobart. It's like, <laughs> oh, I've been invited into the esteemed legion of Bird Hobart readers with the diff. And you can do that, get those smart and curious people by using hyperlinks really well.
0: Totally. Yeah. I- I'm always curious to see what the most clicked on link is going to be in yes. in a piece. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, I'll embed a YouTube video, and that just ends up being because everybody wants to hit the the play button. But sometimes it'll be a link to some explanation of something that's like two thousand words in a piece, and they're like, "That was a good piece." If they're two thousand words in trying to
1: keep understanding what's going on, that is a really good mm-hmm. piece. How have you gone about cultivating your voice? Like one of the things that's happened is I think you use less pop culture references yeah. than you used to. But when you started, you didn't have nearly the voice that you have now. And what's interesting is you have a very digital, modern, contemporary voice, and it's distinct. How did you go about doing that?
0: I mean, I, you know, we'll we'll do the the right of passage plug here. I mean, I think more than any technical thing, I think the the biggest idea that I got from it was the idea of the personal monopoly, of like finding the intersection of a few different things that you care about. And so I was like incredibly on the nose about that in the beginning. It would be like, all right, there's going to be jokes, pop culture, business strategy, technology. I remember thinking specifically, and I've said this before, but like remember thinking specifically like Ben Thompson does the thing that I want to do, but he does it so well that there's no chance that I'm going to do that. But what if I counterposition against him? Like he's never going to be as silly as I am in the newsletters. He's like not going to write about maybe some of the weird topics that I write about. He's certainly not going to compare creative destruction to the Mickey Mouse Club. And so, like, what if I do that and just like really lean in hard to that? And so the first ten like kind of full essays that I wrote on not boring were, here's a pop culture thing, and here's how it's like a thing that's happening in business or technology. Over time, like that really became like thinking of two essay ideas at the same time where there'd be some really interesting things to write about in tech and business that I couldn't think of a great pop culture analogy for, but I still wanted to write about. So over time I dropped that, but I wanted to keep kind of the fun, fresh, different voice that I had in the piece. I think frankly, like maybe my voice has gotten, you know, a little bit more consistent just obviously from writing hundreds and hundreds. I've written over, published over a million words pretty easily at this point. Um, and so it's, it's probably developed just based on repetition. But I do also kind of think that I I need to start reading some more of my old stuff and like get a little bit of that freshness and a back. There's something weird that happens where in the beginning I was writing as a total outsider. I was writing about public companies. um, I was writing about people that I'd never met in my life, about categories that I'd never said anything about before. And now I'm writing about companies that I – know well maybe have invested in certainly know the founders of don't want to say anything mean about Mm -hmm. um and so like i think maybe it just like and certainly there's also probably a you know like i know that when i've said something like this before i've gotten dunked on for it and so like there's definitely a little bit of the like defensiveness in there a caution that i like need to figure out how to remove
1: oh i feel you man i mean the way the 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 way that i was thinking about what you just said is that when you first start there's you and like, it's timid you, it's scared you, it's, ah, I've never done this before you. And over time, what's nice is that the you becomes a little bit more confident. You're now like, ah, I, you know, people have read my stuff, that's a good thing. But the problem is there's a second character that emerges, and that is the caricature of who you are. And that is your perception of who you are and what people expect from you. And oh my goodness, who is Packy on the internet and who is Packy in real life? And so now that these two characters who are playing together, I'm like, which one is supposed to be driving the ship? I mean, I guess the caricature, there's probably a utility to this caricature, but then it actually begins to limit the real David and the real David is evolving, the real David is growing. And then the caricature says, no, 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 don't change this. You're the writing guy. You need to focus on this. And there's this like tug of war that emerges over yeah. time.
0: No, I've been I've been really proud about being very willing to like. Shift topics or you know like write about completely different things from week to week and like try not to become like too much of a thing. I think there is a thread of optimism, but it, that is like very much who I am and like how I see the world. So that doesn't feel like faking anything. But then there, there just is like so I wrote a piece this week and I used a phrase that I'd heard from a founder that we'd spoken to that I really like called cost physics, and I used the word in the piece or used the phrase in the piece, and then. I was actually going to write a whole another piece and might still do this, but write a whole another piece on the idea of cost physics because I went and Googled it and it wasn't a term. Mm. I went on Metaphor to look up other blogs on whether people had written about cost physics, not a term, and like did all these different searches. Finally, I did Twitter. And the first thing that comes up was like essentially like some non-account being like, cost physics, like, like what the fuck is this? Like you know, and like making fun of this thing, and like saw this thread kind of they're like you know making fun of this idea of like oh look VCs rediscovering like manufacturing you know like the whole thing. Now I'm like, do I write about cost physics or is it like dumb? And I think it's a cool like way of describing a thing that people might or might not think about. And so I'll probably still do it, but now there's this little like oh is this idea dumb in the back of my head that just wouldn't be there if nobody read my essays or cared about it.
1: Yeah, one of my favorite sentences that has been uttered on how I write so far is Kevin Kelly, a piece of writing advice where he goes, just tell your story with uncommon honesty. And I'm like, yes, that's what I want to go for more and more. It's like, first of all, I need to figure out the truth for myself. I think it's Robert Trivers, he has his paper from like the 1970s, where he basically says that it's a feature, not a bug, that we deceive ourselves. And we deceive ourselves in order to protect ourselves. So the first thing is like what do I actually think? How do I actually tell the truth to myself? And that's actually most of the work. And then the second thing is, okay, now that there's layers to the truth, how do I take that truth and with courage and conviction put it onto the page to get that uncommon honesty? And if I can do that, I'm consistently surprised by how much it resonates and I'm like Wait, what? That was the easiest thing ever. All I need to do is just talk about what happened, you know? (laughs) Totally. Yeah.
0: I see that. I see that all the time. When I try to overthink something or like overintellectualize it or sound smarter than I am, it just like it comes across as flat if I'm like, all right, I'm excited about this thing. Like, how do I get this excitement on the page without actually like being so excited that people are just like, ah, like (laughs) that he's just being excited about something again. But like, yeah, how do you get the genuine? Feeling that you have, and the genuine way that you think about something. Like, there's so many things in the world to write about. If in a week I'm choosing to write about something, it's because I think it's one of the more fascinating things that I can think about. It's like, how do I get the fact that I think this is fascinating enough to write about? Not perfect, not like going to change the world inevitably, but like one of the most interesting things that I could be writing about right now. How do I get that excitement? Like, what got me interested in the thing in the first place? Down onto the page,
1: and talk to me about that feeling of excitement. What is that like when you're at the keyboard? How does that manifest itself? I'm at
0: my desk. I'm sitting there. I like get an idea. The first draft is never going to be good, but I just try to like write a version of that draft while I'm still excited. Mm-hmm. I, I remember from rite of passage that like you know just write as much as you can. Don't do any research. Totally. Don't edit yourself. Don't. Yeah. And I don't do that. Like. I I come to a new idea as I like I'm trying to do that. I start doing that. I start writing. I have like the excitement and I'm like, I don't understand that. So like let me go and research that thing so I understand it. Oh, this is actually like the ties to this. So I'll like download a book on the Kindle and like reread it. And so every essay is like a week long kind of process. If I'm lucky, I have the full week. Otherwise, I try to condense a week into 4 days of getting excited, finding something that I need to research a little bit more researching that thing realizing like oh my god there's so much information here that i actually don't know how i'm going to condense it all into a thing like what have i gotten myself into then get excited again then write and then like kind of go through that process over and over and over again um, and what the the process actually looks like is and what i've been doing recently is i if i open up a google doc do the you know the title title image start writing do V0 is the first one because I know it's just gonna get scrapped and I'm gonna like use that as the doc where I dump all of the bad like the, the stuff that I cut from the other versions. I've been going through like six versions where I'll write it, I'll like find a good section or like, you know, keep the introduction, find another good section, but like completely start fresh and start fresh in a new doc, like not try to edit myself at all. I'm like, all right, I'm just gonna try to capture that excitement and just like start typing again. And that won't be it. And so, like, I get it's almost like if I find the ski run, like, I get to a spot where I just like hit a wall and I'm like, oh, this is like actually not the right path. And so, I need to go back to the top
1: and like just start fresh again. And so, I'll do that. Wow. So, you will go and you feel like you've done it wrong. And it's almost like you're doing a maze and you go all the way back to the beginning and you try again.
0: Yeah. And really, and as I'm doing it, I think I understand what I'm writing about a little better each time. And so, I can go to the top of the maze. Be like, okay cool like i actually think like this path might be the right one there's definitely and like this is not a an uncommon thing like there's nothing special about me here but like some sort of deadline really really helps and like i, I it just kind of all comes together and i can say it better when i uh, the deadline is approaching how that's manifested recently though is i will work on something for 4 days i'll write six or seven drafts of the thing and then invariably 4:30 the morning that i'm going to hit and I wake up to like maybe edit, maybe rewrite, rewrite the whole thing from four thirty to eight fifty five a.m. And like there will be, it's not just like completely fresh. And this is not for if I'm writing a deep dive on a company where I've like spoken to the company a bunch, I've like done a lot of research, I know the angle. Like those are going to be set in place a couple of days before, and that'll be editing at the end. For the other pieces, I think the last like ten essays that I've written, I've rewritten. At four thirty in the morning, under the gun, texting my brother with sponsors in the newsletter. So like texting Dan, who's been running ad sales, but is now focusing full full time on his business. Um, but texting him, being like, uh, "Do you think like sponsor X would mind if we sent tomorrow?" And like racing, and then texting him at eight thirty, like, all right. Actually, I think we have something. Like I'll send it. We'll just throw the copy in there. But that's that's been how it's been going. And I don't know if that makes the essays better and more raw. I don't know if it makes them worse. But like, for whatever reason, I need like that amount of time pressure to, to get it done.
1: Recently, Wow, that sounds
0: Like my heart is eating <laughs> so
1: fast right now. I don't even know what to say. Like that sounds, that sounds so intense and struck with panic. just a little I've, I've gotten better at not panicking,
0: um, just, I guess, again, from repetition. I'd been spending I mean, before the kids, so we have a, a three-year-old and one-year-old. Before the kids, I would just like, you know, morning to night, all weekend, whatever I needed to do to write the piece. Mm-hmm. And now I've tried to, and then I actually took that into having the kid. And so like my wife, Puja, would who's the best, would be like, all right, cool. I'll take them. You know, like I was like, pretend like I don't golf. Pretend that like <laughs> my golf is writing. Pretend that I'm golfing right now for <laughs> six I need six hours. I'm not gonna be drinking beers with the boys. I'm just like, I'm sitting there and writing, I need six hours. But it would just bring like this stress into the weekend where I'd like, be with my family and then I'd be like kind of on edge. Yeah. And like everybody could, I mean, the kids couldn't, but Puja could certainly tell like, you'd rather be writing right now than like sitting here because like you had an idea. Um, and so I've really tried to remove the stress from the weekends and like just batch, I started, started sending on Tuesday instead of Monday. So I at least have that day to like run through some more drafts. But I've really like kind of pushed all that stress into the last. Uh, you know, four and a half hours from four thirty
1: to nine. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I felt the same thing. Like early on, my weekends were almost the time when I worked the hardest. It was like I didn't have to worry about people. I remember Saturdays and Sundays, I would just, I would just read and read and read, and then I'd have like double writing time. It was like double Jeopardy, but for writing. You know. And I would just do it all day, and I wouldn't have plans and stuff. And then now it's gotten to the point where I I I do not work on Sundays. Like I just will not work on Sundays. Sundays are totally different. But every week I'm like, you know what? This week I might I might not do it. But something happens on Sundays where I'm like, nope, you're not going to work. Um, but one of the challenges that. I've had to face is I used to rely on procrastination as a way to get me going, and it's like, I can't do that anymore.
0: Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. So you've had, and uh, you know, you've had Bernan, he's one of the, the examples I have in my mind of people who just are one, just next level smart, and then two, I think have frameworks about how the world works and like the ability to hang new information yeah. into things as it comes up. In a way that it doesn't sound like you know his process is easy. He's also waking up at five a.m. to write and does it every day, which I don't understand. But like his value add is that his horsepower and like the way that he thinks about the world is just like so strong that that's what he's putting on the page. Whereas when I'm doing it well, I think the thing that I can do is just like be the guy who's like more obsessed with figuring out more about this topic than anybody else. And so that time crunch, like makes me feel like I lose a little bit of that superpower, right? You
1: know, you know this, is my, this is my packy riff on who you are. So like, it's like a bunch of friends, you know, you're sitting around the table, you're laughing. Maybe you've had two beers, okay? For the sake of the story, two beers. You know that moment where like, everyone's having a good time, but when the food is there, you're kind of focused on the food and then the food is done, but like everyone knows they're still gonna be there for a while and that's often when the conversation gets really good. You're like the funny friend who just got really into something? It's like a fairly intellectual group, <laughs> and then you go and you tell everybody else of what's going on, and it's like that thing where there's like some interruptions in the conversation, but everyone's laughing and having a good time. And then you get after the the dinner, you're driving home, you're like, "Man, I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot." <laughs> That's sort of like what you do, but for writing. <laughs> I
0: I will take that. Uh, I've never I've never thought about it that way, but I really like that. That's that's what I wanted to feel like, right? Like one of the reasons that I started writing not boring in the first place, that I called it not boring, was that I was like, this is the most fascinating stuff in the world. Like there is sci-fi happening. There's like this drama happening, but like there's you know these these kids and like Mm -hmm. just geniuses who are building these things for people, and the way that it gets written about. Is so dry. Like I think business strategy is so interesting. And I like, you know, Richard Rumelt's good strategy, bad strategy. I think it's like a little bit better written. Obviously, Ben Thompson's stuff is like is really, really good. But most of the time, people read about business. So they're like, Oh, you're talking about business. Like, please don't talk about business here. Like, we're trying to have fun. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, this is some of the most fun stuff imaginable. And my job is to like try to convey like why I think it's so fun and interesting to people. Um, in a way that they're like, oh, actually, like this is kind of cool.
1: Well, I think this is one of the reasons that people like Elon Musk so much, <laughs> that Elon is a grade A entrepreneur, say engineer, and then also he's a memer and he's funny. And because you get the laughs, then when he talks about, hey, here's how you need to think about strategy in a production line, I'm like, well, I like this guy because he's, he, he's, he's making me laugh all the time. And, you know, <laughs> and then he has a meme that I just saw, which is like, Immanuel Kant, <laughs> Genghis Khan. <you> know? <laughs> that was that was very good. It's so.
0: It. I'm sure you'll probably interview Walter Isaacson at some point. Yeah, and so apologies in advance. I'm sure he won't listen to my episode. I really liked the Elon book. I thought the central like question of the book, which was essentially like, would Elon be able to do all of this if he weren't this like kind of crazy person? It was just like such a nonsensical question because the answer is like so clearly no. Mm -hmm. Like those two things go together so tightly, and that's awesome. Like we are so lucky to have people in the world who, you know, like my uh, get canceled here. Like I think the Clintons had a great marriage, right? Mm -hmm. Like I I think if if you if you are two people of eight billion who want to get together because you want to achieve these like outlandish things that nobody achieves, and like you don't have the most loving relationship, and like somebody cheat. Okay, like, hmm, what a great partnership you were able to find where one of you was president and the other of you almost became president. like that is a success in in what they were going for in that marriage. And so like the fact that there are some people who live unconventionally and are willing to like do this crazy stuff to try to do these big things, I think is wonderful. And I think that's like such a silly question because it's like, no, you' like you need that Elon crazy, and like, net, net, what a positive thing for the world that 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 exists. You're talking about flow, what is that? practically look like for you flow is like getting five pages into an essay and being like whoa i wrote five pages and then going back and kind of reading it and being like whoa that was actually like pretty good and that's like kind of what i wanted to say mm-hmm. like I and mean, then i guess the obvious example is like the the will Farrell uh debate scene in mm-hmm. old school where he just like blacks out and came to it and like it said something really good where it's like whoa i actually like I didn't think that I was gonna write exactly this when I started writing this thing. Yeah. and now that I look back, like that was better than I you know had I over intellectualized it and like thought about the words too much, like something that I wouldn't have written. And so flow is like almost a thing that I realize happened after the fact if I've written something good that I like hadn't gone into that writing intending to to say exactly like that.
1: One thing that I've noticed is. So I really struggle to get into flow when I'm typing. I don't know what it is. I feel like I probably have like some early onset arthritis yeah. or something. It's just like when my fingers are moving, even just moving my fingers now, they feel like compared to other parts of my body, it's just like my fingers feel I can hear them crackling a little. Uh, I'm like yeah. what's going on? Right? I can yeah. I can crack my fingers easily. I'm like what's going on with my fingers? You know, they're they're they're, they're just tight. And so much of my writing has been a quest to still write, but use my fingertips less. Hmm. And what I've discovered is voice, voice translation and voice transcription. So Super Whisper has helped me where what I do is I just pace around the room or I'll go on a walk and I then get into a flow. And I've noticed that my ability, the number of words I can write in a single session has doubled
0: huh do you end up having to go back and edit more or differently or like take your chunks of ideas and write them in words that you There write? is
1: no doubt that I have to edit more. There is no doubt, but I think that what I lose in the accuracy of what I write, I gain in flow and all I'm trying to do, I'm not trying to make a statue. I just need marble and, as long as there's a statue inside that marble, it's a success.
0: What do you have going into your walk? Do you have an idea for something? Yeah, and then you just riff? Do you have like a structure already?
1: Yeah. So the way that an epiphany manifests itself for me is a full body experience. And generally, it's one sentence. So I'll give you one right now that is percolating in my mind. So I was just talking to Michael Mobison, and he, likes to quote this paper from 1980 called, it's a mouthful, on the impossibility of informationally efficient markets, okay? Where basically says the whole point is you can't have efficient markets for information. You actually just, because there's a cost of collecting data. And I want to take that idea and apply it to writing for people who say, all the ideas have been shared and basically say, there's this concept in finance and if you follow the logic of that and then you apply it to writing, it basically, no, you're wrong. It disproves what you're saying. Yeah. So I have that idea. I have the structure in my head. I have the first part. I have the second part. The, the second part. So what I'll probably do is I'll probably go for a walk in Central Park right after this and talk that out. And then what I like doing is I'll probably talk it out. And then I'll, as I'm talking through it, I'll discover things as I'm doing right now. And then I'll say it again and again, and every time try to compress what I'm saying, and then once I hit the third time, I'll usually have the structure, take that airdrop on the computer, type it up, and the piece will be done
0: and Do you feel like a crazy person walking around like yes do, do, do yes you, do you th- like what goes on in your head? Do you think like, oh, people will think that I'm having a phone conversation so they won't think it's weird, or can do you think that people will be able to tell?
1: What I like doing is I don't do airPods because of the, <laughs> Because I've had exactly this. I'm like, oh, you know, am I gonna look like some crazy person? What I do is I get my phone and I take the bottom of my phone, I put it under my mouth, and then it's as if I'm doing some voice memo or something. So it only makes me mildly crazy. Perfect. That's great. What's a time where you feel like you were really in a flow?
0: It's maybe not even as much on the writing side, like the times that I'm thinking about, like I wrote this piece on Tencent, and I ended up turning it into a two-part piece. This was like fairly early on when I had nothing but time. This was like early COVID. I was at my parents' house, like nothing to do. Like my mom would cook meals, so like absolutely nothing to do. And I was like, you know what? I think they're the portfolio of investments they've made is super interesting. It doesn't exist anywhere, mm. and so I'm just going to like get into the internet and like go to Chinese you know language sites and like find all them, like cross referencings with each other and like. Find as much of Ten cents investment portfolio as I possibly can and put it into a spreadsheet. And that was like two days worth of just like digging and finding something that contradicted and like then having to find a third source. But it just felt like by the end of it, I was like, oh no, no, no. like I, I know where all the different like things are hidden here, and like I'm not going to fall for that, you know, bad data source again because I saw that over here. and, It was just like a couple of days of like. By the end, I woke up and I was like, "Oh my god! Like that was a ton of work to do in a couple of days." And now I have this cool document. And I think more than anything, I wrote in that piece like giving people a link to a spreadsheet. I did this with sci-fi ideas recently, which was a really fun project actually. So um, there's this great, great site, technovelgy.com, technovelgy.com, where this guy just takes all of the sci-fi and like lists out line by line. You know, this book in this year said this idea, or you know, had this idea for this technology. And then he'll, like go back and link new news sources, like to when that thing actually came true. And so I did a project where i I took as many of those as I could. I like copied and pasted pasted from the web page into an Excel sheet. I used chat GPT. To format the spreadsheet and like get it into like a place that was consumable, and then I used two different Anthropic accounts because I would rate limit the Anthropic accounts back and forth, trying to like have them explain whether that idea had come true or not on this like three thousand entry list. And it was the same kind of thing where like it was two days, and like finally when I cracked this, like oh wow, like this thing is like actually starting to work, and like everything that it's saying makes sense. I remember just sitting in the room. It was actually at my parents' house also uh, with the kids, but they were watching them now, which was great. Just like flowing back and forth between Anthropic and then taking the sheets out and putting it in the spreadsheet. And by the end, I was like, oh my God, Like this is a really cool resource. And people, I think, I still see people kind of sharing the sci-fi idea bank, but it was just like a couple of days of like, I'm going to flow on this research as much as I can.
1: You know, so this is an inside joke that we have at Rite of Passage, me and my ops guy. He looks at the website analytics and the most repeatedly read piece is why did the Boeing 737 MAX airplane crash, which is just so random because that has nothing to do with anything else I've ever written. Nothing. But the thing that reminded me of it, is I found this leaked memo from 2001. And I'm like, this memo, this memo, people, explains everything that's wrong with Boeing. And I found this memo and I had to do this like crazy thing to download it at the time. It was like, you know, it was like 50-50. Am I going to have all my money stolen from me or am I going to get this memo? Yeah. You know, I get the memo and I just read it. And he just says, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen if we start outsourcing. And that's what begins to happen. The 787 is built abroad. The 777 is this and that. And there is a moment when you find some source and you're like, boom, 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 we struck gold. Eureka, (laughs) let's write, you know? Yes.
0: And people love when you've like uncovered a gem for them, for sure. So there's like the two different things. There's, can I give people this source in my writing and like let them see it for themselves and they've definitely never seen this before and it explains how the world works in a really interesting way. Or there's the like, you know, you're reading something or listening to something and you get a quote and you're just like, that's, that's exactly my argument. Thank you. Like that, that's perfect. I'm going to rip that in. Both of those discoveries are, are amazing.
1: Another great genre on this tack is YouTube interviews of very successful founders before they were very successful <laughs> yeah. when they're just unhinged and you can see how desperate they are for success and how singular- they are as human beings. They're just weird. Like I uncovered this Stanford interview video with Mark Zuckerberg in like two thousand and five. It's like a minute and twenty six seconds long and it's blurry. But I forget what he says, but it's very insightful. and but it was one of those things where media trained Zuck would never say that. And that genre, those early interviews are really good. I mean,
0: Zuck had another when was the Kara Swisher interview? Where he was in the red chair and just sweating profusely.
1: Yeah, and takes off the jacket, the <laughs> sweater, and then it's like some symbol in the sweater.
0: Yeah, I feel like after that is when he got media trained because yes. he got ripped apart for that so badly. He was a public company CEO. The other amazing video from that genre is the Jeff Bezos one and that's been sharing a million
1: times, yeah. but Jeff Bezos is talking about Amazon. Great, great, great video. Yeah. You mentioned Anthropic. How do you use AI, GPT in your writing process? I use it to
0: Explain things to me, like so. I'll say, like, here's here's a, a phrase. Explain this, and then I can ask a bunch of questions about it. I'll like ask it general questions about the topic that I'm writing about, or ask it to explain it to me in a different way, and then kind of just use that in the way that I'm thinking about the piece. I started using uh, in the past couple of months. I use them as an editor, and I don't know actually how much I actually take the feedback. I think Ch- ChatGPT and Anthropic and Claude are both pretty bad editors. Uh, in different ways, um, and so some of it is just like making like sanity checking that I'm not crazy, and having the AI tell me nice things about the piece that I'm writing because like it Ch- is so complimentary. It's like wow, this is a very thoughtful reflection on something. I'm like, thank you, Claude, in particular. <laughs> ChatGPT is like a little, it can be like a little, a little more crotchety, um, but Claude in particular is like, this is, I mean, like what a contribution to the field, and like <laughs> blah. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I it's an A and with this one tweak it's like definitely an A plus among the best things ever written I'm like perfect like that's exactly what I'm going for uh, and so there is a little bit of like as I'm going through these drafts I'm like I'm halfway through the piece I'm like man I'm stuck here Like, I'm just gonna I'm, it's like almost how I take a break from the piece is like let me just dump it in here and have it tell me nice things and like maybe it'll say like you know this thing is is confusing or I'll also ask it to tell me and ChatGPT is actually better this one. Is what I'm saying here right? Or like mm-hmm. how like where would you like your job is to like cynically attack this? Like, where did I get this wrong? Yes. On things that I'm like trying to explain. And it's it's actually pretty good at that. I think the danger there is to like then not add like a bunch of qualifiers afterwards, like, oh, you know, like I'm saying this, but like also I understand that like X, Y, and Z, like there is a balance between being being balanced and like, you know, having writing that moves and like has a point of view and and all of that. But it is nice to know like, if there are any bodies hidden that I just wouldn't know about to run it through for for that reason.
1: You know what else it's good at? It is a bomb thesaurus, a bomb thesaurus. So what I do is I'll take a sentence, copy and paste the sentence in, put quotation marks around it, and then I'll say, read the sentence I just wrote, change the word elegant, give me 10 examples of the word elegant. And what I'm trying to, like the emotional tenor of what I'm trying to convey is this. So good. Yep.
0: I will do that with a blank. And so like if I'm like, ah, I don't know the right word, like I don't even put the word in. Like, here's a sentence, fill in blank. And so it'll like maybe give me that word. And it's sometimes right, sometimes not, but it'll get close enough. I don't then use it as a thesaurus and ask for 10 different versions, but it'll at least like jog my brain on like what's what's the word that I should be using here. If what i'm trying to say is like non not obvious you
1: were talking about using dali for images earlier how do you do that that is i, I like went really hard on it in the beginning and i think like yeah
0: there are some there are some people who have their own distinct style there's someone megs on twitter who has like this beautiful i think she calls it like techno elysian it's like robots and flowing robes and like has like really honed the style there's some people who have like their very own like style, where they run the same prompts and like ask for different things, but have the same like in the style of the same words. And so like they've started building these universes. I, I love that. Um, if you don't do that, I think you can end up looking like kind of generic in and midjourney or, or Dali. And so in the beginning, I was like, this is awesome. Like I will never have to like draw something ever again. I'm just going to ask for the perfect image. And sometimes the images are perfect, and sometimes they're not, but like they, they all end up looking a little bit alike and you could tell that they're they're AI generated um and so now I use them a little more a little more sparingly I used one because I just I had no time the other day uh when I wrote my piece to make the title image um and so I'll do that if I have like if I'm totally out of time and can't draw something can't think of something more creative but I I think I probably went from having like five or six AI generated images in a piece to like maybe there's one
1: now Mm. How do you think about the business model of what you're doing? You have the sponsored posts, you have the investing. Talk to me about that.
0: Yeah. So I have a couple of pieces on the business. I have regular sponsorship at the top of the newsletter. I do these sponsored deep dives, which are definitely the most unique and more people have started doing them, but like certainly the, the most unique, it's essentially it's sponsored content that is like a bad, you know, has has a bad word, but I try to make it the best thing that's ever written on these companies. Regular sponsorship. Super easy. That's just what, you know, what about well, half the, the newsletters do, you either go subscription or sponsorship. I thought that I was going to go subscription. I think there's a few reasons that I didn't. One, I just love the growth in the beginning. And I was like, if I start paywalling even half of my content, it's not going to grow as much. And so I don't want to do that. And actually, it's growing bigger than I thought. And so I can get, you know, I can get to a big enough audience size that I can like pay rent. Oh, I can get to a big enough audience size that I can sell ads and like pay rent and also be able to afford food and like that. Get a latte every day and get a latte every day and not and not worry about it. And so as it grew, you know, sponsorship revenue grew, and so that was great. Um, Sponsored deep dives. I had a couple of companies that were like, "I love the essays that you write about companies. Would you write one of those on our companies?" It's like a sponsored thing. And I was like, "I don't know. That seems..." Weird, like I think the audience probably is going to hate that, but like I'll I'll try it once, and so I did one, and people are like, oh, that's actually like really interesting, Uh, and so then I did it again and again and again, and those are, you know, you'll always get somebody who reads the piece and is like, stopped reading in the beginning as soon as I as soon as I saw that it was sponsored, and like that's totally fine. The interesting thing is like the feedback I get from other founders or when founders tell me what their favorite piece was. A bunch of the time, it's going to be one of those sponsored posts because the founder has one wanted me to tell their story and trusted me with the company's story, two paid money for it, and three invested like a lot of time into like telling me what they're going for and like giving me access to their financials and things that only their investors would see. Sometimes we are an investor in the company. And so, like, we have this behind the scenes access. And I'm trying to figure out like, what is a thing that this company does that's unique or a way that they think about the world that's unique or even just like yeah, you know, i've written about ramp a few times and like they they structure their engineering team in such a way and i think it's more complex than this now but originally they're a fintech company that also wants to move really fast and so they have like they hire for engineers who like to move carefully and don't like anything to break and like and like are a certain type of person who's like just wants everything to be perfect and they put them on the core kind of like payment money movement like anything that touches money t and there's there's that side and then they have a bunch of like cracked engineers who have won international coding olympiads and like they have multiple of these these people they've like brought people in from other countries who like are just competitive coders and move really really fast and break things and they give them a bunch of new features that if they break like really not the end of the world and so they can move really really fast and kind of you know maintain security and uptime like all the things that you need as someone who companies are relying on to, to move money. And so, like a little insight like that, like this is an interesting way to manage an engineering team at a fast growing company that needs to be stable. People like cite that to me all the time as something that they thought was interesting in a piece that I wrote. And I don't think that's access that I'd get without, you know, doing, doing those posts. Um, so, I, I really like them. I'm writing fewer of those just because they are such a huge uh, time investment. But the way that I'd be filtering those is. There's 20 companies that want me to write one of those for every one that I do. And so, you know, I'm not going to be in that piece being like, is this company good or is this company bad? It's like more of the filtering happens in selecting the companies. Um, And then from there, it's, you know, trying to tell the story in a way that nobody's told it before. And so I'm happy with those. And then the fund, I think is like, you know, before I started doing this full time, if you told me, like, if you'd asked me what I wanted to do once I retire, it would be, I want to write. I want to talk to smart people and I want to invest. And like that would be my my life. I view the fund as like one, I, I worked in startups for a while before this. I don't like the idea of like sitting on the outside and writing about things without any skin in the game or without like kind of taking a stance and, and putting my money where my mouth is uh, on, on certain things. So that's a piece of it. And then two, like they just feed each other so unbelievably well. I think one of the underrated things about the combination of writing and investing it's it's obvious why writing helps on the investing side it's access if founders read the newsletter that's super helpful they know how i think about the world it helps there i think on the other side a fundraising process is essentially the founder distilling like everything that they know and like the thing that they're willing to bet their whole career on yes. into a memo or a deck or a conversation with you and like explain you know, I talked to a mining company yesterday, I talked to an energy company yesterday, I talked to a bio co- the biotech company the day before, and these people are motivated and like incentivized to get you to understand why they view the world the way that they view the world in like, as short a time as humanly possible, or like send you the memo where it's like, all right, for a month and a half, I've taken everything that I know and try to condense it in this memo, and like here you go, here's the result of that. And so it is all of these like behind the scenes works of these really smart people that you don't get access to unless you're investing. And so I think that's been really, really cool and uh, kind of a advantage in the way that I am able to gather information.
1: Yeah, that's a beautiful answer. And it got me thinking about how the best part of the internet and the worst part of the internet are so close together. <laughs> the worst part of the internet is people with loud opinions talking about things where they have no expertise. And the best part of the internet is people with loud opinions talking about things where they have a bunch of expertise. And they say, you're wrong. I've thought about this a bunch. I'm gonna write something, I'm gonna share something that's gonna show you why you're wrong. I'm not gonna do it in a way that's attacking you, but I'm really gonna spell, hey, this is how I think about it, and I'm gonna try to persuade you. And this to me is, my mission with my career with this podcast with Rite of Passage is there are so many people in the world who have this core idea, something that they've spent years thinking about, sort of like we were saying with the founder. This is the thing that they're willing to bet their life on. How can I help them to refine, to polish that idea, to get it out on the, onto the internet and actually go share that? Because those pieces, when I read them, are so much fun. I remember many years ago I read this piece on. Like the evolution of the craft beer industry. And when a piece is really well written and the ideas are very clearly explained, it actually doesn't matter that much what it is. People are like, oh, well, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to be interested in reading that. I'm not interested in that. It's like when something is really well written, you can. Read about anything. I read, you know, this is what's so much fun about having a writer that you like. You know, you talk to people who like Bill Bryson. Bill Bryson wrote a short history of nearly everything 1927, The Body. It's like these topics are all over the place, but they like Bill Bryson. Yep. And he just explains something well. And you just come to trust that the writer will make whatever it is that they're writing about a worthy experience for you.
0: It almost like kind of reframes who you're trying to reach with write a passage or w- with this podcast and who you're trying to get to write. Like if write a passage, you're trying to find people who want to write, mm-hmm. it really is like, I've been thinking a lot about this. I don't think I could get to this kind of audience size or whatever right now. Like the thing that I gravitate towards more and more is like there is this 19 year old genius who wrote this one thing on a poorly formatted blog somewhere and like what a gold mine that I was able to find this thing. Yeah. Like how do you find all of those people who like deeply, deeply, deeply understand their thing and get them to get it on paper? And like they don't have to be good writers. Like your job is to help them become a good writer, but like yeah, how do you uncover those deep, crazy,
1: well, deeply understood ideas? I think that this is the fundamental pivot point that the pre-internet world has versus the 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 post-internet world is you use the word find. How do you find these people? And that is the question that you have to ask before the internet exists. With the internet, the word is attract. Yep. And someone who I look at who's done an exceptional job is Tyler Cowen. Yeah. He has his Emerge Adventures program and he writes this idiosyncratic blog that it also isn't just about attracting people, the right people, but about repelling the wrong ones. <laughs> and in the physical world, you're like, why would I wanna repel people? But in the digital world, once you start dealing with any sort of scale at all, actually repelling the wrong people becomes super important. So when it comes to a question like this, the way that I think about it is, what do I write? What do I say? Who do I have on the show that's going to attract the kinds of people who have that core idea inside of them that they need to express, but then also repel people who aren't going to be serious? I don't want someone who's going to show up to write a passage and then is going to say, yeah, you know, I'm just not here to write something superb. I'm like, okay, then get out. Just go somewhere else. Like, I'm not interested in having you. And how do I get those people, all those people together? And then what you end up having is you have people who go through a cohort, then they say, wow, I've never been a part of a community like this. But all that begins way upstream, not with like applications and stuff like that, but with attracting and repelling people.
0: Yeah, even challenge the how do you get them to write something really excellent and it's almost like how do you because i think ideas like you know people or ideas or whatever who get bigger and i've seen this in my own like you get less weird or you like get less spiky or i can speak to more people it's like how do you find the spikiest idea yeah. and add like variants into the like universe of ideas that people actually get to see because like what you have is an audience and a way to get people to express something and all of that. And what they have is this crazy idea that would get no audience otherwise, but like might make a lot of sense. So they, there definitely is the great writing piece, but I think there's also just like the how do you how do you attract these people who have ideas that will change
1: the way that people think a little bit. People who don't write, I think, overestimate how important good writing is in the way that like your fourth grade English teacher tried to get you to write like some poet or some novelist and like, well, I struggled in fourth grade, therefore I'm not a good writer. It actually comes down to a sense of conviction, unique life experiences, and then going through the work of synthesizing and clarifying that. Because I'll give you the editors. We got a bunch of editors. I'll give you, I'll tell you exactly what to do. Yeah. What I need you to bring is some life experience and some sense of conviction. I can help you find that. And then I will just walk you down the path. And as long as you have enough fuel in the tank, we're going to get there. Now, can we do this a hundred times? I don't know. Can we do one really good piece? Totally. Yeah. I, mean,
0: I, I was thinking this coming into this, I, I listened to the podcast, obviously, you know, follow a lot of the people that you've interviewed. And I'm like, I'm actually like, compared to these, I'm just like not that good at Writer, like, I don't have a process. I don't like, you know, you had Tiago on, like, he's thought about like the whole thing around it so much. And I'm like, I don't know, like, I try to find time between like when my kid's diaper needs to be changed and when I have another call. And like, then I just write something. And like, I don't think very deeply about like the sentence structure and all of that. But I don't think it, it in some cases, it does. Like, some people are excellent writers and like, you read them for their, like, their wordsmanship and, and all of that. But I don't think it matters as much as people. So maybe this is just a PSA that like if I can write, you can write. Cause like I, I think it can be intimidating to like hear writers talk and be like, wow, like they put so much into this. And it's like it's not that like it it, it doesn't have to be that
1: much. Yeah. Yeah. Remind me how you got to writing long form pieces. I think was the fellowship that we did, was that when you wrote Conjuring Senius? Was that the first long form piece? Or was that when you were like, no, nah, I don't like process at all, and I'm just going to... Because we did that over like three months, and then you went from that to writing one of those every week. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Yeah, it was interesting. So I, I I guess where this started
0: was I was at my last company. We brought in uh, an exec team who didn't like words very much. And I thought that I was gonna lose my mind. And I like just at the right time, I saw one of your tweets talking about Rite of Passage. So I'm like, I'm gonna I'm gonna do rite of passage because I like I need to do something with my brain.
1: You know what you wrote? You said my goal is to get 20 newsletter
0: subscribers. Yeah, I tweeted that I needed and it wasn't even a goal, it was an assignment from, That's from right. you guys. Yeah, and, like you needed to get twenty people to sign up. And so I like banged a little bit on the internet. Um, the first essay that I wrote actually. It was just like, I think you said, like, find a writer that you, the assignment was like, find a writer that you like and like yeah. talk about their writing. And I chose Ben Thompson. And out of however many people were in that class, in our first group meeting, you were like, this essay was like the best that I, whatever nice thing you said about it. And I was like, oh, I might actually like be able to write. This is great. And so, wrote a couple of smaller essays through that, started the newsletter as the assignment. And so, every week would send out links. And it was just like a thing, you know, I heard Byrne talk about this idea of like, Not wanting to forget things that you read. And I was like, that's that's great. Like I want to just like send a link email out with five links every week because I don't want to forget all of the things that I read. My grandmother had Alzheimer's, like my biggest fear, I have a terrible memory. My biggest fear is just like just losing my, you know, my memory at some point. Um, and so like, how do I do a better job of capturing the things that I'm consuming? And I was doing, you know, here's what a billboard would cost, and here's what the subway ad costs, and like trying trying to break it down. I should go reread that. That piece, but did a few like kind of smaller ones when an idea struck me like that. I wrote a piece on this idea of natively integrated companies, like these full stack companies that kind of do everything themselves. That's been an idea I've been obsessed with uh, for a while. So, wrote that on the side. But the seniors piece was, I think, 11,000 words, worked with Tom White as the editor. And I was so deep in my head on that. And that was one where I like really had paralysis around like how much information, how many smart people had thought about, like, you know, how these random groups of people who are incredibly productive pop up over time. And there's always another book on the ancient Greeks or on the Scottish enlightenment or on any number of things that I could have read to make that piece better. And then I just like dump a bunch of words into a doc and Tom would read versions of it. It was the first time I'd worked with an editor and be like,
1: whoa. (laughs) Everybody who worked with Tom in that fellowship said, this guy is so good at editing. He was amazing. Every person. He, was, he made me not feel terrible
0: about myself, even while he was like, I don't think you're saying what you wanna say here, or like, you completely lose me. You know. Way.
1: You know, I was talking to an editor yesterday, and he said, give me some feedback. And what I said to him is, the art of editing comes down to telling people what they need to do, but in a way that doesn't make them feel bad about themselves. <laughs> and part of that comes from the way that you communicate what's going on. Another part with good editing is, not just condemning what is there, but providing a solution for what could be better, and then building some sort of comprehensive framework synthesis where you can say, hey, you get three lines, three words each, one, two, three. These are the three things that you're doing in your piece. And if you stop doing those things, your writing will get so much better. And when you get editing that accomplishes all of those things, it is a delight. And sometimes you get this holier than thou editor who's like, what the heck is wrong with you? It's like Corella Deville just like stepping on you and you're just like, ugh. And that is a terrible feeling.
0: Or even just the like unclear or like this section is yeah. You know, like little things where you're like- Can you
1: tell me why? You're right, but like, can you just like go rewrite the sentence for me? (laughs) Like, what do you mean when you say that? It's not even rewrite the sentence. It's just give me some help. It it just get me started. Get me started with some momentum. I just don't tell me it's unclear. Just say it is unclear. And if you did this, I'd be way better off.
0: A hundred percent. Yeah, more specificity. Yeah, like you can just tell when Tom's editing you; like he cares and like really wants to make it good, and it's his like mission to make it good with you. I don't know what that flipped to me, but then yeah, you're right. After that, I started writing 10,000 word essays every week instead of in three months. I think there is something freeing about knowing that it's not like the piece mm-hmm. that that I'm working on, and it's just like, all right, I'm doing this every week, and so like. I'm gonna just put as much information in this as I need to. It's not gonna be perfect. I I struggle with this one a little bit. Or sometimes I'm like, should I just go off schedule at this point and like just write when I think that I have something interesting to say and like really craft it? And I have no idea how I would Hmm. how I would be at that. Or like if you know, there's you know, if the the body of work, they kind of like built on each other and feeds off each other is the interesting thing or if like I have it in me to write like you know the one piece that breaks the internet every once in a while it might be worth experimenting with at some point just to see but I've been not you know I have been able to, to make the leap into doing that.
1: When you wrote The Great Online Game did you expect that to break the internet? No. That, that one is
0: like I wrote it and this is when I didn't do this all the time. I like had a draft on Saturday that I thought was not that good Mm -hmm. and so like i threw it out sunday morning and i just wrote that piece in a day like fresh from idea to to publishing which even now is like rare that i'll have the idea and write in a day i was like oh it's like cool like it's interesting but throw a kind of piece you know that i don't think it's gonna be anything special and then it kind of took off it more than kind of took off i feel like it was the talk of the town for it was a week. It was the talk of the time, and it's still like the piece that people cite the most. Hmm. And I think the thing that it did, and I don't know how to do this, and and I'm sure that they're like really great, uh, really great, kind of like writers and cultural commentators who are like have developed the skill at doing this. But I think the thing that it did was like was me putting into words the thing that I had noticed that didn't have a name that everybody else was like. Oh yeah, like I also noticed this thing, and there's a little bit in that of there. There's noticing the thing, and people also just like, you know, being told how to do something. It's so, like the fact that the great online game like had a thing that you can go do, and you can go play, and like, oh, there might be like this amazing opportunity on the other side. Like If I'd known so many people were gonna read it and like refer to it, I actually probably might not have written it in the same way because I'd maybe be embarrassed to say like this is how you should be on the internet. Cause like everybody can do their own thing on the internet, but it was really just like not a lot of time noticing a thing that like, wow, like this is actually a really serious place now where like it feels like you're just typing things and then like look what look what's happened here. Like yeah. I can't believe I've been sitting in my in-laws basement and I get to talk to all these people that I've always wanted to talk to and you know get to reach however many people, you know, were reading not boring at the time, it was less than 50,000 people uh, reading Not Boring at that time. And so I just thought it was like this magical thing. And then I think it was just the right balance of other people had noticed it and felt it a little bit, or some people
1: wanted something similar to happen to themselves. And so it just kind of captured all of that. I think you're speaking to something deeply paradoxical about writing, is that when you try to write for the stadium, you don't hit the stadium. And when you try to write for the individual, you're so much more likely to hit the stadium. No matter how often I say that, I still try to write for the dang stadium. Yep. And then I'll write, like I do a journal thing with a friend every day. And I find that so much of my best writing just comes in what I journal to him. And there's one person who reads it. And I think that to go back to one of the challenges of writing on the internet, trying to Reach an audience is you. You lose that letter to a friend feeling that there's an intimacy about that. Why don't you publish those? These are really, 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 like like this has nothing to do with writing. It's about it, it's so close to me that it, it it maybe I'll do it later in life. You know when I'm in my 80s or yeah. something, but. I really work hard on them, and I write one every day. They're like 200, 250 words, takes about an hour and a half, and it's right on, it's on the post side of my Bible study. And it's like, what did the Bible reveal that I need to know and who I need to be and what I need to do? And it's, uh, it's the thought of publishing those is terrifying. Yeah.
0: A separate question for you because I've been curious about this. I are you familiar with Jesse Michaels? He does yeah. American Alchemist. yeah, uh, American Alchemist. Um, he at one point on I I think he was on the Theory of Everything, the Theories of Everything podcast, and said something about the Bibles. as like almost these like codes that were made to, or the, you know, the Gospels as these like codes. They were made to survive over, like, to be Lindy, to be transmitted, to, like, reveal more and more of themselves over time as people understood more and more about them. It's not a way that I thought about, you know, Jesus' parables or, you know, the the way that he taught or spoke or anything ever before. And I hadn't given it a ton of thought since, but I think it's interesting. The New Testament's 2,000 years old. Do you think we've lost? Do you think there will ever be, looking back from 100,000 years? A text like that again, or because we're not spoken word anymore because the internet moves so quickly because there's so many people producing content, is like impossible to get that spot
1: ever, yeah, well, I think that there's two very different answers to that question, and it depends on what you believe about who Jesus was. and I think that there's no way to actually know, no matter what you're there's a leap of faith, yeah. so. I'm going to put both of these two ideas out there, and I think that there's very, very respectable arguments for both of them. So the first I'll give the you're not a believer answer. Um, I think that, yes, it is possible. It takes somebody who, uh, a person who has a real art and a knack for writing things that are worth memorizing and they're probably going to be a poet who's just incredibly wise, and that would be their goal. How do you write things that people can remember over time? Then the religious answer of a Christian would say, well, Jesus was the son of God, and the reason that it is so profound is, of course it is. God (laughs) said these things and Jesus was fully man and fully God, and then even the other letters, the Holy Spirit was working through the hand of Paul and John and different writers in the New Testament. But this is actually a God thing, so it, it it it's really up to God and not up to man. So those are two very different answers. Yeah, that one's that one's hard to argue with.
0: The non-believer one, I think, is is so interesting because I think one of the other things about it was. And it's impossible to read the Bible. This way have after having gone to Catholic school. Like it just seems so bland and old and boring and whatever. But it was so novel and like so controversial. The the things that you know Jesus is teaching and like the idea that you should love people and the you know the idea that that you know people are worshiping somebody who was killed on a cross in the way that the, the slaves are. The Tom Holland argument uh, about about Jesus. Like it's it's almost impossible to create. I mean, maybe not, but like to create something to create a set of ideas that novel at this point, just because there's so many ideas, like any com- any combination and permutation of things either has been tried or somebody will try and will tweet, I think that's another challenge to, to doing it. Like even this wise, incredible poet is going to have a really hard time shocking
1: the world enough to, to stick. Yeah, you know, I think that this is this is one of those arguments that I refuse to accept, and I actually... <laughs> don't know if i refuse to accept it because i'm because i'm right or because to accept this means to resign to this sort of like end of history argument but i think that people say a lot when they're talking about something like technological stagnation or why there's no new shakespeare or something like that they're like no you know all the ideas are out there and stuff but i've just noticed at least in my own life oh my goodness i'll discover something and then there's more there and there's more there I just have a deep conviction that it's there, and I actually might be wrong. But I think that if I think that, then like, oh no, well, well, I don't know. think new. I'm I'm on your team on this,
0: right? Like, I I am uh, certainly not a believer that we've like the whole point of not boring is that we have not said <laughs> exactly, it, right? and that that things compound on each other, and all of these new things are possible. And it's like there's plenty left to discover, and there's so much left to explore. And we're on this little rock in this impossibly big universe. And so, like all of that I agree with. I think I'm probably also being short-sighted on the other side of this argument, where it's just like there is this like weird set of conditions where to your point there was oral history, things weren't allowed to be said. Whereas like now just it's not that like all the ideas are taken. It's just like as soon as there's an interesting thing to say, a thousand I'd run this exercise. I tweeted about this the other day, where like I'll think of something and I'll be like, oh, that's a clever phrase, and then I'll search it. And like thousands of people have said that thing before. And so the, there's a little bit of that. I, I think I'm probably being short-sighted On we'll put Neuralink's in it. There'll be like the first great Neuralink communicator who's like able to speak directly into people's brains, or you know, like there will be some other opportunity
1: for that, but, right? Yeah, yeah I, you know, I'm always I'm always amazed by two things, and they're directly in tension with each other. The first is exactly what you're saying. Oh, everything. I mean, it's just I've heard this, I've heard that, I've heard this, I've heard that, and at this point, I've just read millions and millions and millions of words. I've read so much that it's like a lot of things I just can tell are just regurgitated. It's like, okay, I I know exactly where you got that from. You got that from this book, this chapter. And there's sort of an eye rolling that comes from it. But then, man, I'll find like one tweet a week and someone will say something. And it's, it's as if they've unlocked a new feeling or a new way of describing something. Something happened yesterday. I was reading an essay from Amor Toles about the painting Nighthawks, reading the piece. And he says, what's, what's interesting about this piece is that the predominant feeling is one of melancholy, but like a mel- melancholy implies a sense of somber sadness, but he goes, but given the context of the city of Manhattan, the melancholy here is actually happy. So he says says, melancholy, but not in a sad way. And then he sort (laughs) sort of starts going through it. I'm like, oh my goodness, I never imagined that melancholy could actually imply a sense of happiness. But the way he said it was like five words. And he gave me, he like gifted me this new emotion that I didn't know existed. It's like seeing a new color. And I'm like, what? And I think that the Possibility for that is nearly infinite. That's amazing, and I, I
0: kind of know, like that. I kind of know what you're talking about—the sense of melancholy within New York
1: City. Ah, wow. yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. Well, he's brilliant. <laughs> he's brilliant. Where do you turn to for inspiration? Where do you find to be like the most, the most fruitful place to be looking? That 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 fuels your writing process.
0: My favorite thing to do every once in a while. If particularly if I'm feeling stale, is to tweet and ask people for their favorite essays that are like more than a couple of years old. And I've one time where like I got a really great list that I'll keep going back to and back to. And they could be short little essays, they could be long, in-depth pieces, but just rapid fire reading like five or ten great essays and different ways people write about things, like that just refreshes me. I'm like, oh, cool. Like that's that's how you're right. So that's from the The writing side of things,
1: and what is that? Is that with the quality of writing? Is it with the
0: ideas? What's going on there? It's with the quality of writing. It's with it depends on the piece. Like some are just like magically written. Some take an idea that I'd never thought of before and just like go deep on on that idea and then you know talk about the world in a different way. Um, What's one of those essays? I love the essay "Becoming a Magician" by. Auto translucence, great piece. I love that piece. <laughs> yeah, so there's just like it's it all. It, it, it's like almost like ethereal, but like you also like really like kind of like. Feel it, and you're like, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Where these like people who are just so
1: unbelievably good at a certain, thing, you know, like there's just those little ideas. But there's a there's a line in that piece that I think hits it, and I think that that's so much of what I'm going for with how I write is like, how do we find these magicians? And the way that she defines a magician is somebody who's different than you, not in quantity, but in kind. So somebody where if you walked along that path, the path that you think that they're on, and you walked. A trillion miles, you would never get to where they are because there's something that they know that they're doing that you fundamentally cannot comprehend. And your attraction to them is the puzzle to try to figure out what is it that they're doing. Yes. That one I try to read every time. There's like it's a list of I
0: don't know, it must be over a hundred essays, but like that is one that every time I go back- I- And why do you think it resonates with you so much? It like I, I can't even describe it. It's just like that that feeling and and Maybe it's you know the great online game thing where it's like finding something that I'd maybe thought before yes. but didn't put into words. And I think that just captures like that feeling for me so well. Um, that I that I go back and, you know, just just try to get that feeling from the piece more than any particular sentence. Like the way that I think about consuming information is like if I'm specifically researching a piece, like I'm just looking for like as much information and facts and whatever as I possibly can. If I'm generally reading, I just like I have a terrible memory. I don't have like the Ben Thompson or Bern Hobart or Marc Andreessen. The three of their brains work like this. And I'm not inside their brain, but it seems like it from the outside, where you just have like a framework for things, and, like a really strong base such that every new thing that you see and like more capacity burns so that he didn't have a good memory. I don't know if I believe that or not, but, uh, and this like, uh, you know, th- this framework where anytime you read something new, you're like, oh, that hangs like right there on the frame and that hangs right there and that hangs. And mine is just like, it just jumbles. And like, I was upset about it. Not upset. Upset is way too strong a word. But like, you know, try to do space repetition or try to like remember things. And I was like, you know what? I could do that and like bang my head against the wall. And it's just not like, it's not going to actually really get me anywhere. Or I can just try to put as much interesting stuff in my brain as humanly possible and like hope that it bangs into each other and creates like some weird idea that just pops out at a random time. And so I've like almost given up on trying to memorize. I'm like, I would love to be able to do it, and I think it's a waste of time for me personally to like really try to memorize things. Um, and so now I just try to like have well-written things or interesting things or novel and weird things uh, that can pop in and b- bounce around in my brain and, and hopefully turn into something interesting. Do you read a lot of books? I read a lot of books. Yeah, Fiction, nonfiction, sci-fi I was doing for a little while a little bit less of now, but like love just to, you know, I think for, for what I'm writing about and what I do, I think there's something interesting about seeing like a thousand year from now ideas or a hundred year from now ideas and like inhabiting that world. Like, I think most sci-fi is actually like pretty horribly written and like you read the prose and you're like, oh, this is like not that good, but there is something about inhabiting a world where that, that just like assumes that all of the things that seem like almost impossible right now just happened. And then coming back to the present and then seeing like just the ideas that are like a year or two away and be like, mm-hmm. oh, like obviously something like that is going to happen. Is this the one? Or like, does the business model make sense right now? Or the the, you know, the cost of inputs, do they make sense for this to be a, a margin positive business? But it's not like, oh, that's stupid or crazy. It's like, oh yeah, like I recognize this idea from the future that this person is trying to build now. And so that, that's pretty cool. As you
1: look at your writing, what is the biggest thing that irks you about it?
0: This is something maybe that more irks me about myself. Like, I wish that I had just like a little bit more technical depth on things, but like a little bit better of like an understanding of like exactly like the next level down of how something works. And I think I have an okay level for, uh, you know, for at least rocking what's important about something and then being able to like explain it back. And I think that's one of the things that I do well. But then there's like the, you know, if you if you scratch three levels deeper, like you' you've lost me. Uh, and just like, you know, I'll actually, I'd love to be able to have that gear.
1: One of the things that I've really noticed in our time together today is like, how how well you have surrendered and aligned yourself to, this is who Packy is. And I'm gonna be that person. There have been multiple moments in this conversation where you said, "I'm this person," so that's what I'm doing. I'm not. I'm, I'm not gonna fight it. I'm not gonna fight it. I'm not gonna go try to memorize. I'm. I'm an optimist. I'm gonna lean into that because that's how it is. And someone might critique that. Hey, my piece about some company is gonna be optimistic. You just did it there. You. And I think that. Look, this is probably a prerequisite for writing a piece every week. And I think that this is. One of the fundamental arguments that I make for writing, that writing helps you learn about yourself. Why? Because you can lie to yourself for piece one. You can lie to yourself for piece two and piece three, but you can't lie to yourself for piece 200. By piece 200, writing about things that you don't want to be writing about sucks so much, (laughs) sucks so much that you're just going to have to surrender and say... This is who I actually am because otherwise I'm not gonna be able to write piece number 205.
0: Yeah, I've never I've never thought about it that way, but now that you say it, it sounds so obvious. I've become a lot more at peace and just knowledgeable about about I guess who I am through writing. In the beginning, I remember thinking, like, look, if I try to write like very like academic or sophisticated style, like I'm just gonna get really tired. <laughs> I get like I write too much. I cannot actually physically do this every like pretending to be someone I'm not in these pieces is actually just gonna be physically impossible. I won't be able to rest every week if I I do that. But you're right, like every little while there's like something else that I uncover about myself that I just like don't try to fight. And that's probably not like great for audience eyes or great for like, you know, a bunch of these things where it's like, oh, this week I'm interested in this like wild biotech company. And like the next week I'm talking about space. It's like exactly what they tell you like not to do audience building wise. But it's like, I just get so like, if I'm going to put the effort into write this much every week, I want to find the thing that I'm like the most fascinated by. I mean, it's the only choice. Yeah.
1: I mean, you sort of said, if I'm going to do it, then I want to write the thing I'm most fascinated by. Like writing the kind of piece that you write every week is hard enough. Yeah. The least you can do. And I think the only way you can do it is you have to be on fire for that idea. And here's the thing. You and I, I think our curiosities function in- similar ways where sometimes we're like, why am I why am I interested in that? But you're just on fire for that idea and your brain isn't in charge. There's something else that's like you are the dog. And there is something else that is the leash that you're just like and you're like yanking your brain to go follow that. Thing, totally. You know? Is there anything else for us to talk about?
0: I think I mean this was like a little bit of therapy. <laughs> A little bit of reunion. This is great.
1: Yeah, that was a good time. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me.